Thanks, thanks, Bill. I am Curtis Cook, retired from the political science faculty here at the college. Uh, this is the sort of assignment that um, retired faculty get, moderate, <laughs> moderating. <laughs> but I, uh, I have been associated with the uh, uh, election year lecture series uh, this year, which we began last December. Uh, and this, this uh, did originate with Fred Sonderman, uh, as Bill says, um, who had a uh, quadrennial symposium on the presidency. Um, when Dick Celeste got here, he invited us to enlarge the project and make it a year-long lecture, a series of lectures, panels, and other events uh, on the election. Uh, so this is the penultimate event of the series, which began almost a year ago. Um, the last event will be, uh, for anybody who's still around, the 26th of October, uh, when Frank Rich will be talking. Uh, we've had a wonderful uh, number of lecturers. Uh, we've had Colorado College graduates, uh, Vince Bizdeck, uh, the Cheney sisters, um, the governor of Colorado. Uh, we had a famous blogger come and talk, um, David Broder, George Will. So it's been, uh, it's been a great year of, uh, of lectures, and I certainly think this, this panel will, uh, will fit right in. Um, what I'm going to do is introduce all four of the panelists um, now, and then they can go directly uh, from one to the other uh, in making their comments, and then uh, we open up the floor for comments and questions from you and go on until uh, you get tired or the hockey game starts. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we're supposed to stop at 4.30. Um, Bob Levy, uh, whom many of you know, certainly many of you know, uh, joined the faculty here in 1968. Uh, he had done his graduate work at Johns Hopkins following undergraduate work at Williams College. Um, he wrote the definitive book on the <clears throat> Civil Rights Law of 1964 and a number of other books on American politics, but you may know him also as the author of The History of Colorado College, uh, a wonderful book. Uh, Bob is here to make the McCain fans feel comfortable. <laughs> Um, in, more way, in more ways than one, perhaps. Um, you know that, uh, that McCain has promised to change in Washington uh, when he's elected. Um, it's, it's said that uh, the first change that he will make is serving dinner at the White House at 4.30. Uh, uh, Eric, Eric Sonderman is class of 76. Uh, Eric owns his own campaign uh, consulting business, campaign and media consulting business uh, here in Denver. Um, on these quadrennial events, we see a lot of him. We call upon him to come down here in these every four years, <laughs> call him on him so much that he becomes a quasi-faculty member for us. Uh, in his line of work, um, it, uh, it is his fate to be anonymous. Uh, his work is seen but not attributed. Um, kind of the opposite of professors. Um, but I can assure the Colorado people that when you watch the television, you'll see his work uh, frequently. Uh, Chuck Buxton, class of 1968. Uh, what, a, uh, what a great year to graduate, to be in and graduate from college, uh, I think, 1968. I was on the faculty up here at the Air Force Academy at that time. Uh, I think we probably looked with horror what was going on down here, <laughs> perhaps a little envy as well. Um, 
Chuck is uh, senior editor at the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, responsibility for weekend coverage, uh, enterprise projects, and uh, business news. Um, he did his graduate work at the Columbia School of Journalism. He's also worked at the Denver Post and at the uh, San Jose Mercury News. He covered um, the national conventions for several years. Um, turns out quite a long time ago, but he did that. Uh, Professor Tim Fuller is famous for attending the same undergraduate college as Paul Newman. <laughs> Except he stayed around to graduate. Um, did his gr graduate work at Johns Hopkins. I was at Hopkins at the same time as Timothy. I held him in awe then, as I still do. Um, you know him as a political philosopher uh, with a CV that would any professor would envy. Uh, he's written a number of books. He's now the Lloyd Warner Distinguished Service Professor here at the college, having also served as our dean and as an acting president. Um, so here's the order. Um, Levy first, and then Sonderman, and then Buxton, and we wrap it up with uh, Fuller. So, gentlemen. It's uh, certainly a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to speak to an audience uh, laden with members of the class of 1968. I'll simply say that as you all were leaving, that's when I arrived. <laughs> and, uh, well, uh, there's a famous quote that in a perfect world, we'd all be famous for 15 minutes. And uh, I'm going to reinterpret that quote to, uh, in a perfect world, every state would be uh, a celebrity for 15 minutes. Well, this is the year that Colorado had its 15 minutes. And I want to discuss with you uh, why that was the case and uh, uh, get some real thinking going on what might happen with Colorado uh, in the 2008 presidential election. Uh, uh, let's keep in mind that uh, uh, Colorado, we have an expression for it. It is a generally Republican state, but moderate business-oriented Democrats can win there. And that expression has uh, worked for us for, uh, uh, for many years. Uh, but it is uh, generally a Republican state. Uh, my first advice to Democrats is keep in mind that the first time Colorado voted Democratic for president was in uh, 1896. Uh, when uh, it uh, went for the Democratic Party on the silver issue. And so uh, I, my favorite slogan for the Democrats for this year is, bring back silver. <laughs> but uh, uh, barring that, uh, uh, another inconsequential fact, uh, which president ran up the biggest percentage vote in the history of Colorado? The answer is Herbert Hoover in 1928. Uh, you may take from that uh, uh, what you wish in, <laughs> in terms of the present, uh, uh, the present time. All right, uh, let's get down to business. Uh, when people say to me, as many have, could Colorado vote for uh, Barack Obama in 2008, I always make uh, this response. Uh, it will be a great historical challenge. And then I first thing I point out is that if you look at the last 15 presidential elections, the Democrats won only three of them. 
So uh, one conclusion, yes, the Democrats have a one in five chance of winning the 2000, winning Colorado's electoral votes in the 2008 uh, presidential election. Uh, well, let's look at those three Democratic victories and see if we can find the same situation coming up in 2008. Uh, the uh, first Democratic winner in the last 15 elections was Harry Truman in 1948. Uh, in fact, it was quite a surprise that uh, a Republican state like Colorado went for Truman. Uh, uh, most unusually about it, it was a close race that uh, went, uh, in which Colorado went Democratic. Usually when Colorado goes Democratic, it's because the Democratic candidate is winning big time across the country. But let's remember this about Harry Truman in 1948. It was a four-way race. <laughs> Strom Thurmond was running as a Dixiecrat. Uh, and uh, you also had Henry Wallace, a uh, progressive, in many people's minds, a socialist. So in this first Democratic victory, you had a four-way uh, split in the uh, uh, vote. Uh, the second Democrat to win was Lyndon Johnson in 1964, following the what I'll call the Goldwater debacle. Uh, Goldwater's campaign in 1964 was not a success, and... Uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson carried 44 states uh, over uh, Barry Goldwater. Uh, so that leads me to my second comment, and that is, if Barack Obama carries 44 states on Election Day, yes, one of them will be Colorado. <laughs> and uh, the third instance uh, in 15 presidential elections covering 60 years is Bill Clinton in 1992. And again, like 1948, that was a multi-candidate race. And uh, if you will recall, a, a fellow named Ross Perot came in. He was unusually popular in Colorado. Perot got 3% uh, more of the vote in Colorado than he did nationally. And so the vote split very badly in Colorado, and uh, that's what enabled uh, Clinton uh, Bill Clinton to, uh, uh, to carry the state. So uh, we would conclude from that, yes, if a strong third-party candidate with great appeal to Republican voters uh, is running, uh, then yes, Barack Obama can carry Colorado. Uh, let's look back at those three people, Harry Truman, Lyndon Johnson, and Bill Clinton. Notice the two are Southerners. One is a border state politician. Harry Truman was from Missouri. They played the Missouri waltz everywhere he went. And uh, that would be the first conclusion a political scientist would draw. Colorado, when it does vote Democratic, likes to vote for Southerners or border state politicians, which ties back to our uh, original statement. Uh, if it does vote Democratic, it likes moderate business uh, oriented, uh, oriented Democrats. Or let's look at it a different way. Uh, if you want to go back to the last time a northern liberal Democrat won Colorado's electoral votes, you have to go all the way back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1936. And I'm sure most of you know how big an election that was uh, for, uh, uh, for the, the Democrats. 
So we look at 2008. Well, is it a multi-candidate race? No, it's pretty much John McCain uh, versus uh, uh, Barack Obama. And uh, then we uh, ask, and uh, uh, is it going to be a Lyndon Johnson-type landslide? Well, when I started giving this lecture, uh, that isn't what people were anticipating. What put Colorado in play was the following scenario, that Barack Obama would carry everything that uh, John Kerry carried in 2004, and then would add three western states, Colorado, Nevada, and New Mexico. And that would give him just enough electoral votes uh, to, win the, to win the election. So uh, my conclusion would be that uh, that scenario was highly, is highly unlikely. And I think it still is highly unlikely. What brought Colorado, New Mexico, and Nevada into play? A very simple fact of our time. As the southern states have slipped away from the Democrats and become more Republican, let us remember that in 2000 and 2004, the Democrats lost all 11 of the southern states of the old Confederacy. Democrats have gotten interested in Colorado, not because it's a very favorable place for them, in my opinion, but because as they have lost southern states, there has been nowhere else for them to look. In other words, the Democrats have to try for the western states uh, because they've lost the South. Look at Bill Clinton in uh, 1992. Along with Colorado, he also carried four southern states, Louisiana, Arkansas, Tennessee, and Georgia. So two of those were obvious, Arkansas, his home state, Tennessee, Gore's home state. But uh, the fact remains that uh, in order for Colorado to go, uh, four southern states had to, to go as well. My final conclusion for you, uh, the scenario Barack Obama will carry what Kerry carried in 2004, and then these three western states is totally unrealistic. Based on the past history, yes, Barack Obama can carry Colorado, but he will probably only carry Colorado in a more general sweeping victory in which he picks up three or four southern states uh, wins a number of Midwestern states that uh, uh, went for uh, Bush in 2004. So, final conclusion, yes, Barack Obama can carry Colorado, but it'll be in such an easy election for him that he won't need Colorado to win the election. I might have a slightly different take on, uh, on uh, the conclusion, but I'm going to go a slightly different direction. If you'll um, just forgive me a personal note here, um, it's a, you know obviously a great pleasure for me to be at a symposium named for my father, and I just want to thank all of you and uh, thank everyone attached to Colorado College for keeping that endowment alive and uh, keeping his memory alive through this symposium. He would have loved this presidential race. Um, but for, uh, for all of you who are students of his and for all of you who are supporters of the college, um, I know I speak for my mother in this as well. So uh, thank you very much. It's hard to imagine he's been gone 30 years this month, but uh, thank you. Uh, 
just, just think where I want to start here. Uh, I think I want to start by clarifying in terms of where Curtis introduced me. Curtis's introduction was very accurate but a little bit dated. Um, we actually, uh, I actually made a significant transition about 10 years ago and really no longer participate in this partisan game. We'd, uh, we've grown a firm, we do all kinds of public policy issues, uh, but we don't do anything partisan. And there are a lot of complicated reasons that I can't get into, but I'm not even sure are all that germane uh, as to why we don't do that. Now what that does free me up to do is to be a political analyst, pundit, commentator, whatever you want to call it, uh, mostly in the Denver market and sometimes in, in, in other markets as well. Uh, the story I often tell uh, is that uh, a few years ago uh, I was driving somewhere in the car and my then 15-year-old daughter, who's now a college freshman, this is my second parents weekend in a row, last weekend was back at Bates College in Maine where she's a freshman and, um, and, and it's great to be here. Uh, but anyway, I was driving in the car, some political news broke, I can't even remember what it was, probably not all that relevant anymore. The phone starts ringing with a bunch of reporters wanting a quote or a comment or a bit of analysis. I did three or four or five interviews. In the course of 10 minutes, I turned to my daughter and said, you know, that's why, and she was asking what was going on, Dad, and I said, well, that's why they call me a media whore, hon. <laughs> <laughs> and as only, <coughs> as only a 15-year-old daughter can do, she sits back and takes about 10 seconds to process this information. And then says, you know, Dad, I really don't think you're a media whore. I think you're a media slut, because whores <laughs> usually get paid. And the, wi the wisdom of youth. I think where I really want to go with this is uh, to flash back on where we've come in the last 10 or 12 months over this election cycle and what an incredible wild ride it's been and what some of the sort of critical variables and dynamics that have been, that have gotten us to this place. If you go back one year now, October, early mid-October of 2007, what was the hot political news? The hot political news was Fred Thompson. Uh, and, you know, flashback to that, he got into the race in September. The day he got into the race was probably his high water mark, or maybe <laughs> a few weeks before he got into the race was actually, in retrospect, his high water mark. Uh, and, 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 and that water only went down from there. But whether you've been a participant in this election cycle or simply a spectator in this election cycle, it's been a wild ride. If you haven't enjoyed this one, then I guess you don't have politics in your veins, which is just fine. But I don't think politics in the big s scope of history gets a whole lot better than this. Uh, and let's just talk about some of those plot twists that have happened over this intervening period of time. I guess the, you know, where I'd really start with that discussion is how did Hillary Clinton ever manage not to get that nomination? Uh, and what must Hillary Clinton be thinking as she sits back last, when was it, last week, Tuesday night for the debate and then this coming Wednesday night for the final debate of this series as she looks on and has to know in her heart of hearts that if she was up on the stage as a Democratic nominee, She'd have all of the advantages Obama has right now and the lead that he has right now, plus some, add another few points to it. So how did she manage to let this slip away? I would say some of the pivotal points that will be looked back on in the scope of history will be that she chose to, ran, to run as the candidate of experience 
at exactly the wrong time when the country was not, or at least the Democratic Party electorate. We'll see if the country's looking for experience. But the Democratic Party electorate, those people that dominate primaries and caucuses, were looking for the exact opposite. They were looking for change. She was the voice of experience in a change year. And how the best and brightest that were around her in that campaign let that get away from them is a mystery to me. Obviously, the vote she cast uh, to authorize Bush to go into Iraq, which she thought was the right move at the time, and most smart people thought was the right political move at the time, turned out to be the wrong political move that was hung around her shoulders and that she could never escape from, and that Obama used to dramatize uh, the difference between change and status quo. I would also point out to the fact that the best and brightest, which is what the Clinton campaign, the Hillary Clinton campaign was made up of, completely missed the fact that roughly 30 to 40 percent of the states in this country, and Bob probably knows exactly what percentage of the Democratic uh, delegates they represent, were not primary states, they were caucus states, starting with Colorado. And the Clinton people really wrote off those caucus states, except for Iowa, where they decided to play and probably decided incorrectly to play and came in third and gave Obama uh, a ton of credibility and viability in the process. It also, the thought has occurred to me of what if, you know, the Clinton campaign, this was an incredibly sophisticated operation. They had all the opposition research that anyone could ever have on Barack Obama, so they had all the information about Jeremiah Wright. Why didn't they play that early on? picture the Iowa caucuses and releasing the Jeremiah Wright videotape a week before those Iowa caucuses. It would have the expected effect and it would have the effect it had later on, although it would probably even be a more dramatic effect, and Obama would have never got started. In my mind, he would have lost those caucuses, he would have lost them badly, Hillary would have somewhat cakewalked to the nomination, maybe somebody else, John Edwards or somebody, there's a name forgotten, we can find him on milk cartons, <laughs> but, um, and, and well forgotten, but uh, uh, maybe somebody would have emerged as the other candidate or the alternative candidate to Hillary, but I think if that uh, videotape would have been released in a more strategic manner by the Clinton folks, uh, I'm not sure Obama ever gets traction. Let's flip to the other party, uh, John McCain, who even though he is trailing in the polls by four, five, six, or more points, depending on what poll you want to listen to on any given day, still strikes me as the only, the only remotely viable Republican candidate in this particular climate. If they had nominated anyone else, Huckabee, Romney, Thompson, Giuliani, run the list, this is a complete wave election, landslide election. This is 1980, Reagan, Carter, only with the roles reversed. Uh, McCain was the only viable candidate that they could nominate, given that he does have credible credentials as something of a maverick, as an independent voice, and given that the country remembers with substantial fondness his uh, run in, 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 in 2000, uh, where he lost to George W. Bush. But then you dial the clock back to you know, where I started this a year ago now, or even a few months before that, the summer of 2004, and he was given up for dead. I mean, that, that thing was politically over. The staff departed, the consultants departed, the pollsters departed. No one took that thing seriously. He went sort of on a, on a more or less of a one-man kind of crusade of taking his message around the country. He was able to win a number of Republican primaries through a happy confluence of events. 
He never got an overwhelming percentage in any of those primaries. He won with very small pluralities, two-point plurality here, three-point plurality there. But A, that was enough to give him the momentum in the media, which is where this game is really waged, and B, through the Republican delegate system, which tends to be more heavy on the winner-take-all process as opposed to proportional representation, those two- and three-point victories got him a, a, a slew of delegates in those states. Uh, in some of the key states, or at least as that Republican process wound down, he was also advantaged by the fact that people who might drain votes from him, i.e. Fred Thompson and Rudy Giuliani, got out of the race, and the one guy who was draining votes from Mitt Romney, i.e. Mike Huckabee, who was competing for some of the religious conservative votes, stayed in the race. And that also worked to McCain's advantage. So the Republicans ended up in a year where their, their brand is obviously as diminished as it can be, they ended up with a viable prospective candidate. Then we move on to February of this year, where Obama really sewed this thing up by reeling off 11 straight victories. If you go past February, Obama did not finish strong at all. Obama finished with a slew of anywhere from mixed decisions to, uh, to outright losses, a, a number of bad Tuesdays where Hillary was given the victory speech and not Obama. Now, a lot of that had to do with demographics and what states were voting when. And it got to be to a point in the Democratic primary season where you didn't even have to cast the ballots in a state. You would look at the demographic profile of a state and you could predict within one or two percentage points of where it was going between Hillary and Obama. Um, but nonetheless, Obama reels off these 11 straight victories in February, becomes the presumptive nominee, probably the inevitable nominee, because the mathematics just got too hard for Clinton to overcome. And then there was the slow drip drip of support over March and April and May. Uh, you have you know, the variable this summer of what Bill and Hillary were going to do 70 miles north of here at the Pepsi Center, at the, at the, at the Democratic National Convention, because the history particularly over the last 20, 30, 35 years, is pretty rife where there, if there is a party divided and if a nominee wins that nomination with a very narrow percentage of the vote, it does not augur well for November. You flash back to Ford and Reagan in 1976. And Ford to his dying day and even in the memoir that he allowed to be published after his death, uh, was very clear that he blamed Reagan and Reagan's basic unwillingness to be a team player at that Republican convention for his loss to Carter in 1976. You look at the fight between Jimmy Carter then in 1980, Jimmy Carter and Teddy Kennedy, and obviously that did not augur well for what was to happen that fall. The Clintons, who in their heart of hearts want anybody to win this White House other than Barack Obama, <laughs> because that does, that, you know, that does a in Bill Clinton's mind, diminished somewhat his legacy, and more important, it probably kills any chances that Hillary has of having another bite at this apple. Um, but the Clintons were soldiers. I mean, they are the consummate political professionals. And I'm not sure I would have wanted to hook up, if truth serum was not it, I would have been sincerity serum uh, to, to their speeches up at the Pepsi Center. But nonetheless, they did what needed to be done and, and brought the party together. You know, then you flip forward less than 24 hours past Obama's speech at Invesco Field, and all of a sudden you're sitting in Dayton, Ohio, and John McCain is announcing his vice presidential candidate, which I know a lot of people will question uh, six weeks later 
uh, and a lot of people will disparage six weeks later, but it was probably the right choice. McCain had to, uh, McCain made a calculated choice, calculated decision that even though the polls had narrowed and he was very much in the game, that if you continued to play the cards as they were played, this was going to be a change election and, and that Obama was ultimately in the driver's seat and that he needed to throw the long ball. Ultimately, in football terms, he decided this was not third and two where he just needed to run it up the middle and uh, get a cloud of dust. He needed to throw it well down the field. And he picked somebody who accentuated his reputation as a maverick and at the same time energized the party base, which had been lethargic to the max. Um, now, how Sarah Palin has uh, has worn and how she will continue to wear is a different issue. At the end of the day, my gut tells me that she served a function of A, immediately taking the spotlight off of Obama after the Democratic Convention, and B, giving the Republicans a bit of their mojo back because they had completely lost their mojo and, and she gave it back to them for some period of time and with regard to the base for maybe some prolonged period of time. So I regard that as a critical variable here. And then obviously, well, two more thoughts. One is Obama made an important transition that most people haven't really commented on, and he went from being the inspiring agent of change to being a rather conventional Democratic candidate. And that, that transition also, in my mind, was largely marked at Invesco Field, 70 miles north of here, with that convention speech. That was not, he gives it artfully. He's a very gifted and skilled orator. But if you look at the content of the speech, it was not a wholly different speech than any other Democratic candidate or Democratic nominee could have given. Uh, and he made a calculated decision, and in my estimation probably the right one, that he had played the first role to get the nomination. He had been the inspiration to give the Democrats hope again after eight years and in many respects longer than eight years in the wilderness. And now he needed to just go up the middle again to return to that football metaphor and become the de conventional Democratic candidate. And then, of course, the ultimate variable is what we've all experienced uh, over the last few weeks, where this has become an election. It, long before the, the economic travails of the last couple weeks, Iraq had faded from the radar screen. And I would say that ultimately Iraq's fade from the radar screen is a huge benefit to Barack Obama. Now, that might be inverse logic. But McCain would have loved this election to be fought out on foreign policy. If you look at the debates, that's where he's comfortable, that's where he has energy, that's where he has animation and passion. Uh, if this election is getting fought out over domestic turf, over economic turf, with an incumbent president who struggles to get approval ratings of a quarter of the country, uh, that is just an awfully awfully heavy weight for John McCain to carry around, and ultimately it's probably too heavy a weight. Uh, so I think that is ultimately the turning point here. Just to wrap this up, and I'll uh, turn it over to Chuck, but in re reference to what Bob was saying about Colorado, I, I think I'm going to half agree, half disagree. I will agree that I don't think Colorado, even though a lot of people predicted we might not only be a swing state, but be the swing state, the pivotal state that this thing might turn on, I don't see that happening. Uh, for reasons somewhat that Bob mentioned, because if Colorado goes, it's only going to be because there's somewhat of a national tie. I would say that I think Colorado, and I don't know how many Colorado residents are here versus people who took an airplane in, I assume we're heavy on the latter, but um, 
Colorado has undergone a transformation over the last couple of years, and it's not only targeted for lack of other options, it's targeted because Colorado, Democrats nationally regard Colorado as a state that is undergoing political change. In 2004, after that election, I said, I don't know if it's gone from red to blue or just red to periwinkle. Um, but <laughs> it seems to be periwinkle at least and trending pretty hard blue here. We have, in 04, we elected a Democratic U.S. Senator, Colorado College alum, Ken Salazar. Uh, in 06, we elected a Democratic governor. The legislative majorities have gone up. And most telling to me, Democrats were doing this in Colorado. If you date, go back only 24 months, Republicans had a registration advantage in the state of roughly 180,000 people. So Democrats were winning elections in Colorado when there were 180,000 more Republicans than Democrats. Over the course of the last 24 months, that 180,000 has withered to roughly 20,000. So, um, you know, I think the, the targeting of Colorado is both a function of southern options being long, long since foreclosed, whatever, but it's also a function of Colorado trending periwinkle to cobalt blue and, uh, and Democrats seeing this as, the, as potentially the keys to the White House that have been escaping them. I'll leave it there. Thanks, Eric. Um, I'd like, first of all, to extend a special uh, greeting to all my classmates from uh, 1968. Uh, when it comes to that year, for the record, I don't remember a thing. <laughs> uh, I do want to uh, bring the perspective that I have, having worked in newspapers for uh, more than 30 years now, and if this has been a sea change in politics, it's also been a tsunami in the way in which uh, the media cover the news. Probably more importantly, the ways in which you all and the whole country uh, gets, it new gets its news, absorbs it, and, and forms its opinions. I was a history uh, major here, uh, and um, I'd like to take you back uh, uh, for uh, just a few seconds back to 1984. Uh, I was an editor then for the San Jose Mercury News, I was helping guide uh, coverage of the Democratic Convention in San Francisco. Uh, as you may remember, the nominee, Walter Mondale, took a long shot bet on his vice presidential nominee, the first woman to be nominated for vice president of a major uh, political party, Geraldine Ferraro. What was significant at the time is that newspaper coverage ruled. There was no internet competition. Uh, there was really, the only really other source of news. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you hear me better now? Okay. I won't start again, though. Um, this is in San Francisco in 1984. And as I said, newspapers ruled. Um, television coverage was really the only other major source of news. But as an editor and, 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 and working with reporters, whether it be a regional paper or a major national paper, what we wrote set the agenda. Uh, much of what we wrote was the central source of news, and in other words, people read it first in the newspaper. Well, let me go back just a week. I want to sort of set the scene for you a little bit. Um, I was in my office, uh, which is in Santa Rosa, California, where a newspaper owned by the New York Times, just uh, north of San Francisco. Uh, think wine country, and you know right where we're located. Uh, <coughs> And one of the things I do is handle election coverage. And uh, as I do these days, I was scouring websites. On one of them, the Washington Post had a story. John McCain was pulling his campaign out of Michigan. 
The story was written by the Post Political blogger, and he had this to say. The news that John McCain's campaign is abandoning its efforts in Michigan, first reported by Jonathan Martin at Politico.com, is the latest in a series of negative developments for the Republican ticket. And now I'd like you to see the front page from the Wall Street Journal the next day. McCain abandons Michigan. What a difference. A political website breaks the story. It's almost instantaneously, instantaneously picked up by the Washington Post website, and the news cycle is run for more than 12 hours before it shows up on the newspaper page. Uh, Marcus Broccoli, he's the new executive editor at the Washington Post, observed, in the Internet age, the cycle is constant and people don't have time to reflect all day on a single story in the newspaper. And it's more difficult, really, to set the agenda for very long. So what does this all mean? You all know that information being via the Internet is an onslaught, an outpouring of blogs and commentary and just plain crazy stuff. I was speaking to a group of students uh, just this past week, and uh, they admitted that they were watching the uh, vice presidential, presidential debate on television uh, in their journalism class. But at the same time, some of them were playing Palin Bingo, and I'm not sure if you all know what Palin Bingo is. Uh, it is a way of, on the internet, they were all getting bingo cards on their Blackberries or their laptops, <laughs> And every time she said a particular word, they would fill in their bingo card. <laughs> Which may help some of you understand uh, that last bit on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> it's also distracting for me as a longtime uh, newspaper journalist to hear Sarah Palin, who is the nominee for vice president, tell Kate, Katie Curry, I'm sorry, Katie Curry, that she really can't name a newspaper that she's read lately. The crux of the matter is in-depth, definitive work uh, is not getting the attention that it deserves, at least among the, the opinion makers like people in this room. Here's what Bill Keller, editor of the New York Times, had to say. It's obvious, and no crime against humanity, that the world has many, many places to run for information, misinformation, analysis, rants, and so forth. We, the Times, the Washington Post, political, the news outlets that aim to be aggressive, serious, and impartial don't dominate the conversation the way we once did. And that's fine, except it means some excellent hard work gets a little muffled. Well, the reality is the Internet is about to pass newspapers as a source of political news for American readers, for young people, and for the most politically engaged. It has already happened. I'll give you a little context for the, what happens in the world of newspapers and what has happened. Uh, when I came to the Breast Democrat almost 20 years ago, we had a circulation of 100,000. We had a newsroom staff of about 120, and we had a web viewer viewership of zero. Today, the newspaper has a circulation of about 70,000. It has a newsroom staff of about 70, which is probably going to be less than that very soon. And it has a monthly web viewership of more than 4 million page views. This gives you a sense of where things are going. Well, how does this play out in the kind of the consensus building, the view of how we kind of work as a democracy? 
Um, there was a great piece by Eric Alterman in the New Yorker uh, back in March, and he talked about some of the implications of this. Um, and this is, this is what he wrote. We are about to enter a fractured, chaotic world of news characterized by superior community conversation but a decidedly diminished level of first-rate journalism. The transformation of newspapers from enterprises devoted to objective reporting to a cluster of communities, each engaged in its own kind of news, and each with its own set of truths upon which to base debate and discussion, will mean the loss of a single national narrative. It is impossible not to wonder what will become of not just news, but democracy itself, in a world in which we can no longer depend on newspapers to invest their unmatched resources and professional pride in helping the rest of us learn. One thing is sure, this is a transitional year for media coverage, so pay attention to where internet news is going and don't ignore the good deep stories, whether it's the feel of the newspaper in your hands or spending more time with the story uh, you want to read. Well, um, it's always both interesting and difficult to follow three eloquent analysts of the dynamics of the, of the elections and the, the media. Um, before I um, comment on those things, um, I should mention something about Paul Newman, since uh, <laughs> He and I share the fact that we graduated from Kenyon, but beyond that, I can say that in the year that I graduated from Kenyon, he received an honorary degree, and so I actually met him. We were on the platform together, and he came with his wife, Joanne Woodward, and I actually conversed with them, and, and they turned out to be really nice people. So uh, as everybody now says after his death, he was, he was a remarkable and uh, honorable and um, admirable human being. And my brief encounter with him would suggest that that's true. Um, one of the things that, that might strike you about what we've discussed so far uh, is that what is conspicuously on the sidelines up to this point is the discussion of any actual issues. Uh, we have... What? <laughs> uh, act, that's not quite true because what Chuck just talked about is an issue, of course. But, but you know what I mean. I mean, Professor Levy is the, the reigning world expert on the history of Colorado politics, and Eric is a highly established analyst of Colorado politics, and everything they say should be listened to carefully and taken quite seriously and the issue about the media and its impact on how democracy operates um, likewise. But in a way, the very way in which we have so far discussed this illustrates exactly the problem that Chuck referred to, that in many respects we've become much more preoccupied with how things are presented to us than directly with the things themselves. Uh, and it's not surprising in a way um, because anybody who looks at TV news coverage in particular uh, sees how hard it is now to avoid the talking heads and the spin. Um, and any sensible person fairly quickly comes to see that you can't learn very much or gain very much insight 
uh, into the important issues that we face by just listening to the partisans of each side yell and scream at each other and never actually listen to what the other person is saying. Um, it's hard for me to understand exactly why we're so fascinated with it, but you know, it was mentioned also that I teach political philosophy. It does remind me of the allegory of the cave in Plato's Republic, where the cave dwellers are chained um, in a single position so that all they can see are the shadows cast on the wall by the fire that's behind them, and they have no notion of the reality of things uh, whatsoever, and in a way, um, our current situation resembles that kind of problem. And so the question for us, um, all of us as graduates of, of a fine liberal arts college, is how do we ascend out of this cave into which we seem to be descending ever more completely? Uh, but I'm also reminded of the other thing that uh, Socrates is famous for saying, which is that if, he's, if he is wiser than others, it's because he knows that he doesn't know. Um, and I accept that. There are a lot of things I'm about to talk about in which I don't have any special wisdom. Uh, but one thing that strikes me about the current situation um, that's easy to forget when we look at it historically and analytically is how much depends on contingency or unpredictability. Um, the fact that McCain might now lose in a dramatic way has a great deal to do with the sudden intervention of the economic crisis that we're going through. Um, it is to the advantage of Obama, of course, and to the disadvantage of McCain. Um, everybody learns in Political Science 101 that when the economy goes down, um, incumbents um, suffer. McCain is not an incumbent, but he is attached to the incumbent president, and therefore he will take the blame for something which it, to a large degree isn't his fault. And Obama will take the credit for um, having an alternative, um, although it's hard to say exactly what his alternative will turn out to be. Um, and maybe he's wise not to be too explicit about it at this point. So there's a difference between the short run that is, what do the polls say today? Where is Colorado going today? Um, and the long run. So I want to say a, a couple of words about the long run as opposed to the short run. Because one of the things I think is going to, will, will be clear is that whoever wins this election, there are certain underlying conditions or issues for the United States which will persist through whatever change in administration takes place. Um, there are certain long-term characteristics of American politics which are obviously affected by elections but aren't necessarily determined by them. Let me give a few examples. Let me, th let me talk, for example, about foreign policy. You notice that at the moment foreign policy has dropped out of sight. Uh, nobody's talking about foreign policy. <coughs> Uh, and I, it's obvious why that's so, given the, the crisis in the economy. But the issues of foreign policy haven't gone away, just because we're not paying any attention to them at the moment. And let me characterize that this way by saying that there's a fundamental debate about the American role in the world. Uh, that's also not surprising, because from the time of George Washington to the present, it has been a central feature of American political life 
to argue about the role that America should play in world history. Um, is it an empire or not an empire? Um, should it follow the, the policy of promoting democracy everywhere in the world or should it adopt a more realistic, um, more restrained policy? Those issues have not been decided. And when I listen to Obama and McCain talk about them insofar as they do, what I get out of it is that both of them are saying very similar things about that. Um, when I listen to Obama, uh, I don't get the sense that he has any interest in holding back the American presence in the world. He may argue for it to be pursued and projected in a way that's different from the way in which the Bush administration has done it. But he is no less interventionary um, in his uh, foreign policy pronouncements. Um, as Clinton was no less interventionary in his way. Um, and I think the reason for this is because there's a continuity in the, in the American understanding of its role in the world that goes, that goes back at least to Woodrow Wilson and which is remarkably consistent through all the presidencies of the 20th century. I mean, I could read passages to you from foreign policy addresses by people like Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman and not tell you who said them, and when you heard them, you would think they were said by George W. Bush. I know this because I do it with my students. I read these passages to them. I say, who do you think wrote this? And they say, George W. Bush must have written that. But no, it was written by earlier presidents who basically formed the pattern of thinking about American foreign policy, which has persisted over generations. These elections aren't going to change that. They're going to adjust in some ways the way in which the administration goes about it, but the basic continuity and direction and self-understanding of American foreign policy, I think, is going to persist through this. Um, in other words, there are certain things I think are going to change less than the um, excitement of the election itself would reveal to us. And I don't have to um, go into too much detail about the more specific issues. How are we going to deal with the rise of China? Who is going to control the Pacific Ocean, uh, which is traditionally the preserve of the United States? What do we do with Russia? Um, how do we extricate ourselves from the Middle East, or do we persist in our presence there in Afghanistan, about which um, Obama has been extremely hawk-like? Um, or the rising importance of Africa, um, or our relation to the European Union, and whether that will succeed in transforming itself into a world power or not, and of course, Latin America. Um, the contours of the issues that we face in these respects do not change because the person occupying the White House changes. Um, and so my prediction, insofar as you could say it's a prediction, is that there will be a considerable continuity between what we're doing now and what we do later, even if there is a substantial change in, 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 um, uh, in the White House. On the domestic side, um, everybody knows what the issues are. Social Security, Medicare, regulation of the financial institutions, taxes and spending, and nominees to the Supreme Court. 
uh, these are the big issues that everybody talks about. Um, here, you might say there is more likely to be some change, but I'm not sure that that's true. One of the electoral issues we didn't talk about is the question as to whether the Senate will become filibuster-proof or not. Um, and there's now an argument as to whether it's theoretically possible that this, the Democratic Party might achieve a 60-member Senate, which would give it the chance to govern without the kind of blockade that both parties have suffered in recent years, um, and whether that would be a good thing for us or not. That's a big question. Um, in some ways, whether that happens or doesn't happen might be more important than which of the candidates wins the presidency. Uh, because those big issues haven't gone away, the disagreement about how to handle them hasn't been settled, um, the controversy over how we resolve these problems that loom over us uh, remains. So just as a kind of uh, footnote to what everybody else has said, I just want to remind us that uh, um, there are very fundamental issues that we face. In my own opinion, the character of these issues is such that no single individual, no single president can really um, turn the tide in one direction or another, uh, and, that, and that in fact even, even with a filibuster-proof Senate, there will be disagreements over domestic policies which will be quite significant. And I think maybe more significant than disagreements over foreign policy where I see more of a consensus um, than not, despite the rhetoric um, that inevitably attends a presidential debate. Um, there are features of what President Bush has done which will persist into the future, uh, whether one approves of them or does not, uh, because the, the issues that those policies were designed to address will persist into the future. So what we have to hope is that whichever of these individuals uh, wins, they will turn out to have the kind of practical prudential judgment which is necessary in a wise statesman um, in d seeing a way to create some kind of uh, workable consensus on some of these issues. Now, both candidates have said that that's what they're committed to. Both candidates have described themselves as transcending partisan politics. Um, and that's very appealing, uh, but I think Realistically, we have to recognize that while it's attractive to transcend partisan politics, in fact, neither of them will be able to do that um, because the issues are too big and too complicated for there to be a simple consensus. So what I predict is that there will be a considerable continuity in the issues we face and in the range of alternatives that are available to us to respond to them um, regardless of which candidate wins. Though I have to say, as a final comment, that I'm just as interested and, and fascinated by the daily changes in the polls as anybody else. Um, when I went home for lunch today, the Dow was below 8,000. When I came back from lunch, it was up to 8,900. Uh, I asked myself, what is a sensible person to do in the face of something like that? And the answer is sit tight. <laughs>
Okay, that leaves us good time for comments and questions. Sir. Sure. 